Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio. Yep, Peter Joseph endorsed this show and that little recording, and he's also on with us tonight in an all-star cast, uh, including a surprise appearance by Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. Um, tonight on V-Radio, uh, we're going to have Peter Joseph, the uh, filmmaker of the Zeitgeist Films and founder of the Zeitgeist Movement, uh, Jacques Fresco, founder of the Venus Project, and Roxanne Meadows, also with the Venus Project, and Doug Millett, um, engineer working on the Space Shuttle Program. Um, this, I get a lot of uh, commentary about this show. I want to thank everybody. Um, now, Peter, are you with us since you were coming in via blog talk? I hope so, Neil. Do you hear me? Yep, excellent. You sound great. Good. Well, I was just I wasn't sure. This the the switchboard already lit up, so I'm not sure I, I got the right number. Um, anyway, uh, it's great to have everybody on tonight. Uh, and um, as we had discussed previously, uh, actually, let me go ahead and tell the listeners: uh, if this is your first time listening to V Radio. Uh, if you log into Blog Talk, you can get yourself a free account, and you can click the follow button on the show, and then it will email you notifications of whenever I schedule a segment or when I go online. Another good way to know when V Radio is going to come on is by adding me to your Twitter and your Facebook. Um, you can do that if you go to vradio.org, v-radio.org. It's like v-radio.org. Uh, uh, there you can also see archives uh, of the various shows in the past, uh, some links to some free films you can watch that I highly recommend about this direction, including my uh, interview in Venus, Florida with Jacques and Roxanne. Um, and in addition to that, uh, Doug's Awakening film is also linked there. Uh, and finally, you can go to my contact section, and in the contacts area you can add me to your Skype you can add me to your Facebook, to your Twitter, um, and to my MySpace. They're all linked there, and uh, they're all great ways to know when I'm getting ready to go on. So uh, to those of you who have been around for a while, uh, V-Radio's donation widget is up for the month. Uh, feel free to drop a, you know, a couple dollars in if you can afford it. This is a basically listener-supported radio situation, and you guys are the reason I do this. So now with all of that station identification out of the way, I'm going to go ahead and uh, let my list, uh, my people here introduce themselves. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, Peter. You never know when we have a new listener. Oh, sure. Well, this is Peter Joseph, uh, the creator of the Zeitgeist Films and, of course, the founder of the Zeitgeist Movement. And uh, I can't think of anything else, anything else to say beyond that, Neil, so uh, I think everyone should know who I am. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, that's good enough. It's just so that people identify the voice with the name. Sure. And uh, Mr. Doug Millette? Uh Hello, everyone. I think that's the shortest Peter speech I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> my name is Douglas. I'm a systems engineer with the Space Shuttle Program here in Houston, Texas. I'm the maker of Awakening, Our Technical Reality. I uh, recently did a lecture in co-Switzerland regarding sustainability, introducing Venus, Venus Project ideology to, uh, to a group of people, and uh, a very active uh, part of the movement. Well, it's great to have you on. Um, Jacques, Roxanne, you want to go ahead and introduce yourselves? Are you guys up to that yet, since you got up at 2 in the morning where you are to be on this show? Um, well, I'll do the introduction. For Jack and myself, 
Um, Jacques is the founder of the Venus Project, located in Venus, Florida, hence the name, the Venus Project. And I've been working with Jacques for 35 years. He's been working on the project probably most of his life. He's 94. And um, Peter Joseph, with the film Zygeist Agendum, helped get this project known to the world. Excellent. A introduction. Well, um, thanks you. Thanks once again, guys, for uh, for coming on tonight. It was a real kind of surprise treat. Um, for those of you who are like, hey, you didn't tell me Jacques and Roxanne were going to be on tonight. Um, they basically they heard about this show and they emailed me and asked me to be included in this and very important conversation about understanding the resource-based economy. Uh, Thankfully, uh, Peter actually had been uh, meditating on this issue for some time, and he put together a article that's also going to be featured in the upcoming Zeitgeist Movement newsletter, so you get a little bit of a sneak peek. Uh, Peter, uh, if you want to just, uh, like I said before, we, we read it by sections, and then we perhaps take some time to discuss a given section, and after everybody said anything that they want to on that, then we move on to the next one. Are you comfortable with that format? That sounds fine to me. I, I suppose um, the article written is not extensively long, but uh, it would take a little amount of time to get through to be read verbally naturally. But uh, I'm happy to uh, happy to do that. I'm trying to think about the best way to break it up so it would have a stopping point. It uh, meanders a little bit. It's not a definitive article because it's, of course, a very it's a very difficult thing to explain to people how we arrive at decisions that are not familiar with the process of what to arrive at a decision actually means because we're so absorbed in this this idea of democracy that we've had for so long, this archaic concept that people get together and this mob rule and somehow mob rule actually equates to viable decision-making. And uh, there's many reasons to understand that that is not a viable way to make decisions and history has actually proven as such. But I can... Uh, I can just basically uh, try to extrapolate what I can as I read. Maybe I'll jump around a little bit, but sure, I'll just uh, jump right into it. How about it? No problem. You will, it's, it's not that long, at least in comparison to the things we've read on previous V Radio broadcasts, so go for it. Okay. All right, I'm going to jump right into it. I'll try to be as coherent as possible as I read. The principal structure of a resource-based economy is very different from what we know today. You know, while the system of social involvement in the current model you know, for most countries is given the title of democratic, if you review these issues thoroughly, these traditional practices, you tend to find that the democratic process we see in the so-called free nations of the world is really very, very misleading. A common point made within the Zeitgeist Movement and hence the Venus Project is that our social problems are in fact technical and not political. Poverty, war, educational imperatives, starvation, cancer, medical problems, energy, scarcity, uh, unemployment and the like do not exist as political issues in reality, even though they are generally addressed as such. They are in fact technical by nature and hence each issue can only be resolved by a technical or, in fact, physical solution when you think deeply enough about it. And I think this goes virtually without exception. Um, when one is able to kind of see past the distracting political noise or the opinionated rhetoric coming from this kind of hardened traditional normality and, the, of course, the archaic political machine, which I consider to be very stubborn baggage, if you will, from you know, our, our social evolution on this planet. So Jacques actually was the first to ask me uh, when I first interviewed him, you know, what, what is democracy? And he said to me, you know, well, did you vote for any of the wars? Did you vote for the president's cabinet? Did you vote for the programs the government puts forward? And his point was very simple. 
In the current system, people don't really vote for anything but other people, politicians to be exact, which, as an aside, are basically devoid of any applicable technical skill set. And if you analyze the political uh, population, if you will, most of the individuals in power are there because of their suggestions and not their accomplishments. Uh, it's also worth noting on the subject of the system today that politicians are voted in and yet they have no legal obligation to fulfill any of the promises they made to the public when they run for office. And, and they can only be removed from their positions when their term ends, and that can take years. So to say we live in a, an active democracy where people are put into positions that are actually required to do anything is a gigantic stretch, and it's important that the public understand this, that the public does not really contribute in any meaningful way to society as it exists today, even though the illusion uh, is quite dominant. Furthermore, to get into sort of the sociology aspect of this, which I extensively relate in this article, uh, politicians, like everyone else, are victims of culture, another brilliant phrase by Jacques Fresco. Uh, we cannot understand the integrity of, of uh, any human being without considering the integrity of the environment with which they were raised and live. The reinforcement mechanisms of that environment generate and amplify intent and motivation, and this understanding, when considered in detail, explains why those in positions of power within the current social system perpetually lend themselves to monetary and power-oriented corruption. It is simply rewarded, uh, reinforced, and invariably needed to sustain select groups and their values. Now, generally speaking, remember that the human being is no different than any other animal on this planet. Generally speaking, we are governed by the laws of nature which facilitate our survival, Evolution has made it very clear that animal behavior and hence motivation is a direct learned consequence of external conditioning and reinforcement. Now, of course, the caveat here, we're not denying genetic or biological attributes. I want to make sure everyone understands that. There is no blank slate. Uh, we're simply pointing out the minor relevance this has to specific human thought, active referential experience, values, and hence so-called moral or amoral decision-making, which, of course, we hear in the political sphere constantly. Uh, I, I make an example of this in the article where I denote as a child, you know, each one of us at one point comes in contact with fire, and we might stick our hand into a flame and we get a painful burn. So we have this operant conditioning that secures the understanding, naturally, that fire burns and causes pain, so we stay away from touching fire. This utterly obvious but unfortunately overlooked organism-to-environment interface is what modern psychology has slowly come to see as the critical factor in human behavioral expression. But of course, it's not expressed as such. You know, we don't, no one really relates this to anything. That's why we keep hearing about moral issues. So free will, and I, this is a very important point, and I'm going to stop after this paragraph, because I think uh, Jacques might be able to comment on this, because I think this is very critical. Free will on one side and genetic predisposition theories are essentially what the dominant uh, status quo, excuse me, is what, it's what's put forward for human behavior. I'm going to say that again. Free will and genetic predisposition theories basically ignore the environment as a cause of any given human behavior. And this is like saying that a tree is, quote, guilty for falling on your house after it is being hit by lightning. In other words, it irrationally puts the blame on the individual and dismisses the environment. And this is, of course, how the entire American legal system intrinsically operates as it imprisons more and more people every year, ignoring the circumstances which generate their behavior. 
So to move quickly, I'm going to skip a certain paragraph of this because I want just to make this point regard to politicians, and then I'll stop. Uh, we assume that politicians are, are different in some way. We assume they have some higher moral ground, that they're not subject to the operant conditioning that uh, generates their values. Uh, we assume that uh, they're different. But really, they operate in the same self-preservation uh, capacity that almost everyone else has to do in some way. And to really the staple of the monetary influence, which of course is the pivotal element of corruption in our system, monetary lobbying, lobbying, excuse me, in, in Congress, uh, this would be illegal if, if, money wasn't, if money wasn't a factor. It isn't because money is the ultimate facilitator. And government, as we know it, is nothing more than a business. It is erroneously assumed that government is more powerful than the corporate or monetary establishment. And this is utterly naive and illogical. Government can only operate within the confines of the monetary system. So, and I'm going to stop here. Uh, the moral and ethical distinctions we see within the political sphere are empty, nonsensical notions. There's no point in even considering these issues because the behavioral conditioning overrides all of this, and there's no end to the corruption, no end to the power surge, no end to the necessity, no end to the preservation that culminates within the political sphere. So we can't, we can't rely on politicians, so I'll stop there. All right. Um, let me go ahead and start with you, Doug. Do you have comments so far? Right now, I'm 110% in agreement with everything that was just said. Uh, the environmental conditions under which somebody is reared is basically ignored, except in the social scientific studies that seem to go on. But they don't, for some reason, find their way into real life and the actual practices that we employ to govern ourselves. And, you know, politics is nothing more than a tool of a system that is broken in the first place. Uh, and so, without question, it's, it's a significant factor to negate, or it's a significant ceiling, <laughs> for lack of a better word, to negate the environmental conditions under which somebody is reared uh, and dismiss it and constantly throw, well, it's individual choice. Sometimes it's not always just individual choice. It's individual molding that leads to that individual's choice. And that is something that a lot of people, unfortunately, just don't have their minds wrapped around. Right. Now, uh, was there anything that you wanted to add, Roxanne, or uh, just want us to continue the conversation? Continue the conversation. Yeah, go ahead. Excellent. All right. Stand by. Um, well, um, I guess the only, the only comments that I would add as far as the situation in regards to politicians, and I tell people this, I told them that in my newsletter, uh, not you know, my new newsletter article in the first newsletter, that the only real purpose you're ever going to find out of the, the political system as it currently exists is as a soapbox. You use it essentially to get people's attention. Uh, you basically, you know, because they're listening. People come to a lot of, for example, a lot of things like politics because they think that's where the answers are. They've been convinced that that's where the answers are. And that's, for example, like uh, third-party politicians don't really run because they plan to get elected. They run because people will show up to things like voter forums, debates, and things of that nature. And, you know, you're not going to get the, the, a massive amount of people, but you are going to get the people who I would call the low-hanging fruit who are at least willing to listen. Uh, you're going to find them when you, you know, like when I ran for Congress as a libertarian, there was no way I was ever going to win. But I got invited to a lot of things, you know, on the mainstream radio, mainstream television. That's really the only thing you can do. And, you know, and you would think that 
you feel bad about that, but that's essentially the way the whole system is run anyway, as Peter pointed out. It, it's basically just a dog and pony show. And so for that reason, you know, it's, you know, is it corrupt or anything like that to, to use the dog and pony show for your own purposes? No, you're a citizen just like anybody else. You get up on the soapbox, you're free to say whatever you want. Um, and that's really it. I mean, if, if you're thinking that politicians are even ever going to be in a position to solve the majority of your problems, you obviously haven't run for office yet. So um, sure. that was my only addition. You want to continue, Peter? Sure, I'll just comment on that. Even if it wasn't the dog and pony show, which we all know it essentially is, these individuals do not have the awareness or the training or the important referential understandings. In other words, they don't actually reference anything when they make decisions, and that's going to bring me to the next section of the article. So what I did in the next section of the article is I actually made a comparison to the U.S. Constitution, not for what the Constitution says, but for what it actually implies and alludes to. So I'll, I'll, my, hopefully my meaning will come through as I, as I proceed. So, now, as most know that the U.S. is considered a democratic republic, meaning the democratic process as we know it is bound by a series of seemingly immutable statements and rights declarations upon which most everything else is built. The founding fathers of America, say as you will, did understand the importance of not relying exclusively on mob rule, in other words, a pure democracy in the context, you know, as we know today, could cynically be exemplified by considering that ten white men hanging one black man is a democratic decision. So they realized that they needed to have something else, which is what defines this republic notion, and this became the U.S. Constitution. It is there to attempt to deter mass mistakes with the assumption of pre-existing empiricals, if you will, by which the legal and democratic processes much, excuse me, must adhere. Not to mention, as an aside, because I think this is very important for those that have, have really never thought about democracy in the loose sense that uh, we practice it, mass behavior or herd behavior is, in fact, far more malleable and controllable than individual behavior. Historically, mass consensus is often wrong and misguided. This is provable endlessly. Numerous studies have been done on the issue, and there's a very uh, unique book that I recommend for everyone to read called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay. And he discusses all of these different phenomenon of mass, basically madness of crowds, and what happens when people get together with the wrong information and this momentum moves. And, you know, uh, the majority basically in concert can behave in a far more destructive manner, far more irrational manner than the individual. And I think that the Founding Fathers of America probably understood this. So they created the U.S. Constitution. But who is to say that the U.S. Constitution is universal or near empirical? Is there anything in that document that shows a chain of reasoning? Can it be quantified in any way? No, not at all. It is an intuitive document, not a technical one. However, and this is my point, there's a very important gesture within the U.S. Constitution. And what it alludes to is the idea that there are indeed somewhere governing empiricals, or at least near empiricals, that's the term that I use, upon which all other choices must be referenced. And it is here where I bring up the subject of the scientific method. The scientific method, which represents the orders of natural law, if you want to give it that term, such as physical science and mathematics, and even the fundamental needs for nutrition, the need for clean water, and everything else required for our personal and social survival and progress, could be considered the real, quote, constitution 
of social and natural governance for our species' survival on this planet. It is the methodological referent that has stood the test of time. In fact, I would say it's the greatest intellectual human discovery and progression of knowledge that uh, we have ever come to understand, and it's unfortunate. And as Jacques points out, we are barely out of the dark ages on this planet. And I think uh, this is really where the, the, the honing in of our understandings and values must relate to is the scientific method. So given this, we now find that there is a real, a near empirical, testable measure upon which all of our concerns can be contextually considered. This is hence the platform for true social participation, coming back to the issue of arriving at decisions in, quote, democracy. And a resource-based economy presents this method as the basis for arriving at these decisions. It is the inherent, quote, social constitution by which all of our decisions must be referenced for clarity. Majority opinion is secondary to natural law. It doesn't matter how many people vote on outlawing gravity. Nature doesn't care. Nature is not a democracy. So given this, participation in a resource-based economy is hence not to simply vote for a person or vote for an idea. It is to, in fact, interface with the process of logical inference and tested proven proofs which show what works and what doesn't work in the natural world. In other words, it is not based on the whims or opinions of an ideological group, but based upon physical law, causal reasoning, and all the things that we can go through and test to see if it's actually viable, to see if it actually is sustainable. Now, I'm going to stop here in a moment, but as denoted in our – actually, you know what? I think this is a good position to stop, in fact, because the next section I'm going to talk about has to do with the central database program, which contains referential knowledge, and uh, that would be the interface, the physical interface that uh, society and government would interact with, if you will. Uh, but I'm going to stop there, so anything I said, uh, please comment. Excellent. Well, yeah, when we get to that, that point in particular, I can't wait to hear from Doug. Um, but, uh, all right, um, Doug, uh, go ahead and go first. Sure. The, uh, it's a very important, serious distinction to make here is, is that nature, nature is nature. And, you know, we, there are certain, as, as Peter mentioned, and I fully agree with, you, you can't BS nature. The whole point of science is to try and allow us to explain our own conditions, that's not just the human condition, but also the conditions under which we live, the physics, the chemistry, all of the sciences that go about explaining the natural world, natural universe. Let's go beyond the world on that one. So that's what science is, that's what its goal is, is to constantly try to poke at the universe and learn how it works, and as best as we can at the moment, describe what we see in predictable, reliable ways so that we can duplicate and or enhance nature's capabilities for our own benefit. And so it's very important that if we are going to govern ourselves in a logical, proper way, then it would make sense that our social constructs be based on the very system that governs us. We are regulated by nature, whether we like it or not. No matter what we invent on this planet or how many toys and bells and whistles people have, if, let's say, a giant rock were to come and crash into this planet, you're done. You cannot fight that. 
no matter what you think might happen. Now, what we could do is come up with technologies and ideas and devices that could prevent that from happening. But in order to do that, you need to use science and the methods by which science is done in order to solve those kinds of problems. And so it, it's very important to understand, and, and as Peter alluded to very well in, in the paragraph structures that he just created, that governing ourselves by virtue of natural laws is, is the best way to do it because that is what's going to give you the most probable truth at the moment based on what you know. That's, well, that's definitely what the, you know, the benefit of the scientific method, you know, the most probable truth that you can get at the moment. Um, and as I've said on previous shows, one of the absolute best things about the scientific method is unlike any other ideology, unlike religion, unlike politics, uh, unlike even political ideologies, the moment that science discovers that something it previously understood is incorrect, the new information becomes the science. That's why science is never wrong. Right. <laughs> it's not to say science can't make mistakes. It's that science has no ego. It's not bound by tradition. It's not bound by, well, you better believe as we do or you're going to burn in hell. It's not bound by, well, you better believe as we do or you're a socialist or you're a fascist or you're a capitalist. It's, well, this is what we've found. And now it's the truth. And if we find something new, well, now that's the truth. And all of the other things that have ever blurred it have nothing to do with science's weaknesses and have everything to do with what happens when the monetary system involves itself in anything else. I mean, the monetary system, as you said, in Zeitgeist to Denim, taking on nearly religious proportions, people do worship money, and uh, it ends up blurring everything. That's why you end up with situations like, do we have a real answer on global warming? I'd like to say that we do, but we don't, because there's just too much money in the situation to really know. Do we have a good answer on, you know, pharmaceuticals versus homeopathic drugs? No, we don't, because there's too much money to be made in those things. These are the only things that hold back science. True science, which is, you know, pursued in the absolute, you know, search for knowledge above all else, is the best solution that we have for making decisions. So go ahead and continue, Peter. Yeah, absolutely. Did, did Roxanne want to comment on anything? Oh, yeah, good question. No, we were going to listen primarily to oh, what okay. you spoke. No problem, then. Maybe come in later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go ahead, Peter. Okay, so I'm going to jump into, and this is a, this is a very brief um, description of the central database, as I quoted in the orientation guide we put out. Uh, I think the, the terminology is slightly different in Jock's book, The Money, The Best That Money Can't Buy, but uh, this is just a, a summarization, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it and We'll worry about the semantics later. Um, as denoted in our orientation guide that anyone can download, uh, we present what is termed a central database, which is a referential hub for all human ideas to be essentially evaluated by. Uh, this database operates through pattern recognition, which is very simply known as AI or artificial intelligence. There's nothing scary about it. Uh, for those that aren't really familiar with this, I mean, AI on a basic level is nothing more than code that can find and link relevant patterns for the logical culmination of a particular recognition. You know, when you go to a Word document and you spell check something, uh, a very simple artificial intelligence engine scans the patterns of the incorrectly spelled word that you punched in and the fragment, and it can basically orient around that to find what that pattern represents 
uh, in usually it takes a few tries sometimes, but it's a very primitive thing, but that is what artificial intelligence very simply is. A more complex version of this I'd like to throw out, uh, which I've been studying recently, and I met somebody that's been working with the individual, uh, and which very closely mirrors what the Venus Project proposes, what Jacques has proposed in a more totality-oriented way, meaning taking in the whole of human knowledge, is done by Wolfram Research called WolframAlpha.com. It's a very primitive search engine that this individual put together, very, very profound implications. So I just want to throw that out there. You can go to WolframAlpha.com and uh, read about this. Uh, very important. Now, on a more tangible level, you know, for, on, just on the subject of AI in general, in the future, automobiles will not be designed by anyone. They will be generated in one shot by artificial intelligence based explicitly on the desired function and maximum efficiency and, quote, sustainability, everything that we need to make the highest efficiency, the minimum retro, negative retroactions, and just the very logical simplicity of, of how to survive and to not pollute our environment and to create longevity. That's all that would be essentially needed is the insertion of function into this program, and with its built-in and ever-updating database of knowledge, it will generate the needed vehicle design for production in a single equation and solution. Again, it's a technical process. We humans, we only recognize and react to patterns. That's all we do. I mean, at, at, on this level, and, uh, there's really nothing technically that will not be emulated by AI in the future. And, and in fact, uh, as many know with uh, singularity and things that have been happening in different circles, machine intelligence will exceed human intelligence in the near future. This is not a threat. It's just a way to get rid of dangerous human opinion and replace it with quantitative feedback mechanisms that arrive at conclusions based on as much input as possible. That is what an educated decision really is, is to logically take into account all known variables. And I'm sorry, the human brain is far too primitive to be able to do this at an efficient level needed to, say, run a government, to run production, to arrive at the best decisions for whatever the society may need. Now, I've gone through all that little spiel and someone listening might think, oh, well, what does this have to do with democracy? Well, once we realize that all real problems are technical and all solutions are solvable by taking in as much data as possible, organized by causal reasoning and pattern recognition, evaluated, tested by the scientific method, we then begin to understand that true social involvement falls mostly in the, in the realm of human need. What do we want? And why do we want it? And this is where the very critical subject of values come into play. And values, of course, are talked at length by the Venus Project. In fact, in a lot of ways, values are, are the most important, important issue in, of all the things we talk about with this cultural transition that we're trying to make. Um, and at this stage of the, of the movement, uh, this is where the focus should generally be because the technicals, in my opinion, are fairly simplistic when you begin to understand the broad view. So we have these, this baggage. We have this baggage of ignorance from prior periods, uh, not to mention the really despotic reinforcements that we currently have in our monetary paradigm, which continue to perpetuate the social warfare and just the general insustainable, insustainable practices that we uh, tend to see, which is why the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist Movement push for the removal of this system as fast as possible. And in my personal view, I think that we are on pace to self-destruction uh, with the new technologies that are emerging because the maturity level of society is far too poor for us to handle the new advanced advents uh, that are coming. Uh, we have to be much more responsible. Look at what happened with the nuclear bomb. We had all of this tremendous energy we could have used for space exploration and, this, and all sorts of possibilities. 
and yet we create a gigantic bomb that had the capacity or in combination could destroy all life on this planet. So when nanotechnology comes to fruition and you can create a nuclear bomb the size of a marble, uh, we better have a very sophisticated culture to be able to handle that type of power. Otherwise, uh, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. So anyway, back on point. Democracy in this context is really about finding consensus with values. And I'm sorry to say, values are not equal. Some are more correct and hence sustainable, while others are outdated, just plain wrong, and hence unsustainable. While, you know, while that statement might sound controversial, I'm sorry, but demons do not cause illness. We do not need to burn witches anymore, and people with Tourette syndrome are no longer considered to be possessed by the devil as they were in the past by a culture that didn't know any better. So if the goal is human survival, then we can assess values, we can qualify values, and consider the effect they have on the process of human survival. And those that do not have a positive effect, or those more specifically that have a negative effect, naturally should be removed. And uh, I could go on a huge tangent on the massive list of values that are either obsolete or have severe negative problems that are in the, in the current culture, but I won't do that. But as a basic example, I would just say for those that don't quite follow me that are listening, uh, if you have a value where you want to go out and pollute the stream uh, with toxic waste in your neighborhood, I'm sorry, uh, people are going to drink it, they're going to die, uh, you might injure yourself. So your value is intrinsically unsustainable to nature and yourself. Values are not equal, and the real revolution is the revolution of human values shifting towards scientific understandings, to put it very simply. So let me just go ahead and summarize the last two paragraphs. In a resource-based economy, we arrive at decisions by the scientific method, not mass consensus, using a referential database which can calculate technical solutions. Since democracy as we know it is in – since democracy today, excuse me, incorrectly assumes the, you know, the mass public is in fact adequately informed on every given technical issue, which of course is a huge stretch, along with the historical reality that mass influence and propaganda can steer the masses in an entirely irrational way. We see that mob rule simply can't be trusted, and that's a very important thing and controversial statement, but it's, it really is the truth. It's extremely dangerous to give the masses pure control. So now this isn't to say that public opinion has no place because public, educated public thought of the individual or a group does have a place because in the end we're always going to be in an emergent environment. Our, our to the, excuse me, the totality of human knowledge is always going to need more and more input. So there are always going to be subtle problems that emerge as a consequence of a lack of information. And it is in this context, of course, using the scientific method, pegging your understandings against a system that can actually put it together for you and understand it better than you can, taking in as many variables as possible, this is the context where participation, I think, will emerge in the future. So. Public consensus, new research, input, this is needed. This is where, and coupled, of course, with the values of what people want, given that there are sustainable values, such as entertainment, such as goods that, in fact, are for pleasure. We don't, not everything has to be absolute utility. We can have a fun life, naturally, uh, but they have to be sustainable one way or another. So beyond that, um, I'll just conclude, conclude with this. The demands of human opinion will always be second to demands of physical, natural law if our collective species' goal is to actually survive on this planet. And as Doug pointed out, I will paraphrase, we cannot impose our views on the world. 
we can only extract them. And that's the end of the article. All right, excellent. Thank you very much for bringing that to us, Peter. Sure, um, no problem. Lots of good, good lots of good comments uh, in the chat room. Uh, Doug, this also kind of, as we just we discussed in the pre-show conversation, this kind of delves into the technical aspect that you're, you're definitely the one who's the expert on. So why don't you go ahead and launch into whatever comments you had, and then we'll we'll further the conversation from there. All right, with respect to what exactly, the uh, limits of the scientific method that we were talking about, things that were, you know. Well, first on what he just said, and then we'll, we'll definitely get into all of that. <laughs> okay. Um, what I've said for quite some time, I want to make sure I say this correctly, and I've even said it in the forums before, even though I don't visit the forums that often because they drive me nuts. But, you know, opinions are not valid to me. Informed opinions are what's valid to me. I do not want a baker telling me how to do my spaceman job, nor would I want to tell the baker how to do his job or her job, because that's not my field of expertise. I have no knowledge there. However, for some reason, a lot of people seem to think that their two cents matter no matter what, and no matter what the topic or what the discussion happens to be about. And I'm sorry to say, to check the ego at the door, but it doesn't, because there are times and places based on your knowledge and experience where your opinion is valid and helpful, and the rest of the time, you're just throwing out an uninformed bunch of two cents. And, and the problem, I'm not even really have a problem with people giving their opinions, because they might have this crazy idea that could work, and it could be right. But the problem is when they think that their idea must be listened to and has to be followed with this idea, well, if you don't do what I say, then you're ignoring me or you're not counting me or you're hurting my feelings. You know, the United States would be offended. Um, and so it's, it's this, this notion that just because they have an idea that for some reason it is, that is empirical, which is completely not the case. Uh, that doesn't mean that they should instantly be ignored, but they should also have the, a certain amount of respect for the people involved. And if they throw out an idea and a little bit of thought is put into it, and they decide, well, you know what, we probably that might not work, but keep, keep it in your head, though, because it might come back later and it might become valued. Don't throw it away, but just kind of chop it up and put it in the file cabinet. You know, then that's a more respectful dialogue, and that's something that I don't see happening a lot. So people who advocate the notion that we need to do direct democracies on things like the website, for example. Not enough people are informed on exactly what the movement is about to be jumping up and making decisions on how things are supposed to be run. And as much as it might pain their ego to think that, they're just not in a position to do that. And so I very much agree with that, you know, values need to change and that you need to respect what others bring to the table is not necessarily an appeal to authority because people would like to probably throw that back in my face. No, it's an appeal to knowledge. That's what science does. When a scientific team is put together, they don't put the junior kid right out of college in charge of the project, unless that person happens to be a certified genius and wicked knowledgeable of whatever that, you know, that task at hand needs to be accomplished. They put the most senior technically educated and experienced person in charge of that particular team to facilitate the accomplishment of whatever that scientific or engineering task 
needs to get done. And that's how things should be done. But we don't exactly do that. We put politicians in charge who don't know their A from a hole in the ground, and they end up doing exactly what we have seen over the past, you know, 100 years. Was that the, the finish of your comments so far? Yeah, I think so. I don't want to... Well, no, that's fine. I would just very just quickly just note that it's not an appeal to authority as it is appeal to methodology. Everyone needs to, to make themselves subservient to the process of science and not get caught up in, you know, all the culturally reinforced ego issues and, of course, the assumption of opinion that everyone has a right to it, as you've, you've eloquently stated. It's not, I mean, obviously certain individuals have much more education in certain areas than others, and that should be respected. And it isn't that them as an entity is an authority, it's the fact that they have done the work. They are actually a culmination of the data. They are an entity with the knowledge. And they hopefully are also using the methodology, as we all should, to consistently evaluate that knowledge and arrive at the proper conclusion. I look at the world as a data set. I meet people, I look at them as a data set. I try not to fall victim to all the overtly humane, I don't mean this in a negative sense, but all the overtly you know, whimsically human special kind of nonsense that we all put forward. Uh, we are all essentially programmed biological machines. And I'm, that, as cold as that might sound, it's so relieving when you finally begin to absorb that. It's, so, it's such a release to understand how simple things actually are. So, uh, but I'll leave it at that and not get too philosophical sure. on you guys. No, that's fine. We've actually got plenty of time, Peter, just so you're aware. I mean, it's, we're, we're barely even through the first hour. Um, let me, uh, one of the things I wanted to say first of all about uh, politicians, uh, to add to what we've already been discussing about how they don't know what they're talking about, as Jacques pointed out, you know, politicians have no idea, they're not qualified. Um, even, uh, for example, one of my political mentors, uh, Senator Mike Gravel, uh, I used to be part of the Ron Paul movement, and uh, he's kind of the guy who actually kind of got me even further out of the box and really let me see politics for what it was. And at one time, I was running for Congress, and I, I talked to him about it, and I asked him for advice in the, in the unlikely event that I won. I was like, you know, are there any classes I should take or, you know, anything like that? He's like, no, you don't have to bother with that. I was like, really? Why? He's like, well, well let's take Ron Paul, for example. You know, he was an obstetrician. He, you know, pulled babies into the world. How much of his expertise do you think had anything to do with parliamentary procedure, economics? You know, he, he's an economist on his own, but none of his formal training has anything to do with anything outside of being an obstetrician. So it's, it's to further state that, that, in fact, most political science majors actually end up working on campaigns. They don't generally become politicians themselves. Uh, and... Next, I would point out to those of you who are concerned about, you know, any uh, redistribution of authority, I think that it's important for people to understand that what we're talking about is not creating, uh, like I've heard that the technocracy, for example, wanted to put scientists in charge of everything. We're not talking about that. We're talking, actually, when you consider that the Venus Project's concept of what education will become, as Jacques Fresco stated, you know, we will all be generalists. We will all become qualified. Um, and what Doug is talking about is absolutely valid in that you need to be qualified before you start throwing your weight around on a given project. But you can also, in a Venus Project society, a resource-based economy, free education of the highest quality, where your professor, who I might add, in current um, 
education, being a good teacher actually does not get, uh, does not get you paid well as a university professor. Teaching is this other thing they have you do. Writing research papers and getting more students in is what gets you uh, good teaching as a professor in the monetary system. This will cease to be in a resource-based economy. Um, this isn't actually a tangent. It's all relevant to, what, to the point that I'm coming to, and that is that um, real education that emphasizes critical and analytical thinking that is available to every person uh, will change the way everybody thinks. As Jacques has pointed out, there's no reason that there needed to be only one Einstein of his era, one Edison, one Tesla. You know, these are the kinds of people who, ironically, usually the smartest people you find end up being people who came from unusual educational backgrounds. Uh, Jacques Fresco, for example, in his story that you've heard on my previous broadcast, Albert Einstein, um, Thomas Edison, uh, completely homeschooled because he was dyslexic, uh, and these are all examples of people who are brilliant, um, who came outside of the normal educational norm, who for that, and I honestly think that's why they're smart. I usually tell people that. I mean, when I joke around with them, I say, well, hi, I'm not very educated. That's why I'm smart. Um, <laughs> so we would redefine what education is. And for that reason, um, the competence level of everyone will be higher. Uh, the example of the cybernated system that is given at the end of the, uh, the film Future by Design, uh, I believe it was. No, actually, I'm sorry. The, the one with William Gazecki. Now I'm just having a, a moment of forgetting. But in any yeah, case, at the end of it. Yeah, that's it. Okay, Future by Design. Anyway, um, at the end of it, you know, they show a dome, and, you know, there's a bunch of people sitting at computers, and they're all able to participate in the conversation going on. Um, and they all get to give their, their say. Well, what if we did this with the design? What if we did that with the design? And then after that, that's the participation we're talking about. You don't, you don't weigh what this many people think over what this many people think unless you absolutely have to. It's better instead to simply demonstrate that you're right. If you can do that, then the answer is obvious. Anything else, you know, it, it, as soon as you start to make it come down to, well, I know this many people think it, well, then you run into the social stratification problem of, well, I don't want to be the only guy not voting for this. Jeez, you know. Herd mentality. Exactly. You know, you don't want to think about, you know, you also maybe, you may might have some kind of irrational problem. You know, maybe you don't like the guy who likes this other uh, solution, and therefore you don't want him to succeed. You've got some kind of social resentment issues. This all sounds to be, you know, people like this, you know, that this doesn't apply to them or it doesn't happen, but it goes on all the time. I perfectly illustrate that concept with my, uh, my lecture in Switzerland. If you look at, in fact, what you're describing is very much why I did my lecture the way I did. Um, I can go up there and say we have the technical capability to do all this amazing stuff and provide abundance, but unless I provide proof, which is exactly what I did in the handout, I gave links to various examples of proof of what I was saying, then my words are hollow. They mean nothing unless I can substantiate what I'm saying with valid proof of systems that exist to verify what I'm talking about. And a lot of people just say things, and then they're like, oh, we'll get back to you later on 
<laughs> on the proof or just trust me, this is how it's going to happen. Well, first of all, you're not the great Kreskin. You're not going to predict the future and know exactly how this is supposed to pan out. I would much prefer to have proof, thank you very much. And that's the one thing, another reason why I'm kind of getting away from debating online is because nobody ever brings anything to the table other than their comments, but they don't bring links or anything else for me to research that supports what they say. They just say something. But I, on the other hand, will throw out link after link after link to support the various positions that I take. And that's why if anybody has not yet, you know, seen my lecture in Switzerland, you can see how I put it all together to show off the specific technologies that can provide abundance for every biological and quality of life need that a human being requires to live a great life on this planet. And you cannot argue, anybody, nobody at that conference could in any way, shape, or form discount what I was saying because I had links to prove it. And proof is a significant part of a scientific method that is what will help alleviate bad solutions, improper reasoning, and just going off on tangents that lead us down bad roads. Right. That's, that's very insightful. Um, and I would say that uh, I hope that people understand that what, what you're talking about, Doug, is that the authority, it needs to be taken out of things like ego. It needs to be taken out of things like the various social games that we play with each other. Authority needs to be in what is, period. Right. That's the way, you know, if, and if you can demonstrate that, well, then obviously you're right. As simple as, simple as it, it is what it is. You know, exactly. there's, you know, it is what it is. That's the basic rule to go by. And if you can't prove it, then freaking don't say it. Don't right. think or whatever. Do the scientific research. Do the analysis. Do what you've got to do to bring the proof to the table to support your claim. And then we can go from there. That's why I think it's – go ahead, Peter. No, I was just going to say it seems so obvious, doesn't it? It seems so obvious. And you look around and you say, oh, well, we have to be using – reason, right? We're actually making educated decisions in the, in the actions that we do, right? But no, we're not. We're based on a folk way of social operation that's based on moral distortions and, again, evolutionary baggage. And people, educated people tend to really think that there's reason behind the decisions of government and, and they're not. They're self-serving, you know, nonsensical attributes that only benefit a select few and have no long-term long-term orientation whatsoever. One comment that I like to repeat, because so I like the singular statement that I hope everyone will take away, is that we want to move away from social theory and into physical science. Society is a physical entity. It is, a, it is not a, a conglomerate of human needs and wants. If we want society to work, it has to be from the standpoint of a near empirical association, meaning it has to be created on actual reason and actual operation that actually relates to something, as I denoted before. So I just want to say that again. We want to get away from social theory and into the realm of physical science because society is a technical creation. That's actually, you know, what I was going to get into is that, and this is something that we covered a lot uh, on the show I did with Ben Stewart because he talked about how there are a lot of people that believe that they are free, but they're not because they're not mentally free. And that doesn't just mean the having the right to say, I'll do whatever I want. It's about being free of ego problems. It's about being free of manipulation. 
It's about being free of any wool over your eyes. That's what makes you really free, and that's the kind of stuff that we talk about here. We're not talking about taking freedom away from you. We're talking about clearing, you know, suggesting that you clear out your head so that you really can make your own decisions. You know, or, people are, you know, go ahead. Or, and I'll do you one further, just, just to make it, to bring one more level to this, because I completely relate to what you're stating, but on another level, we're not free, and no one's free. And it's time that we understand that we're bound by the natural order. We're bound. We're not the illusion of freedom. I can't, regardless of how much I believe I can walk on the wall that's sitting next to me, I can't do it. The law of gravity says no. The law of gravity is a dictatorship in a sense. So freedom can't be taken too far where it becomes this poetic idea. But I think you understand that. Obviously, I know you understand that. But so simultaneously, we're not free. And also, our thought processes are also not a free will oriented. They are a contrived from the environment that we are existing in at the exact moment that we are in and the environments that have culminated us. So simultaneously, it's a form of paradox to be open and also to recognize that you're intrinsically conditioned. And it's a very, very difficult state of consciousness to, to get your head around that. Right. Yeah, you're only as free as nature allows. Right. You know, you're not free, you're not free to not eat for a month and survive. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you will die. Starvation. Uh, and, and, and add to that, you know, when people say, well, I'm free, I'm like, okay, then stop working and go with your family to the Bahamas for a month and live a great month. Oh, well, I can't do that. I'm, aha, so how free do you really think you are? You're not as free as you think you are. You're as free as you can afford in right. this particular system. And you're as free as you're allowed to be based on the systems that constrain you. So the best thing to do is to develop systems that relieve that constraint, but still, of course, obey nature, because nature is a fickle beast that will smack you down if you try to go too hard. Yeah, right. right. We, can either, we can either align with the natural processes that we learn about and give up our values that are erroneous or are later proven incorrect, or we can suffer the consequences. And unfortunately, Humanity is on pace to suffering some tremendous consequences unless uh, a tremendous, uh, for lack of a better expression, consciousness shift occurs. People have to get educated very quickly uh, before uh, these new scientific advents come, in, come to fruition because I really, I'm really fearful, and I mean this literally, of what is in store for the future once these incredibly powerful scientific energy-oriented advents uh, that I mentioned briefly in the article come to fruition. If we're not mature enough, and this is again is a different problem. If we're not mature enough to handle it, uh, it's going to be terrifying. What will what will happen? That's correct. Um, and that's you know, and basically, I I was to finish kind of one point I was bringing up earlier. Uh, we were discussing the issue of people not understanding the the true nature of freedom. Uh, we're also talking about you know, there are so many things that go into what people uh, you know make a, you know what opinions they have. As Jock says. You know, you've heard that you, you know, everybody should have a right to their opinion, and he states that that's very dangerous. He doesn't say you don't have a right to your opinion, but he states that it's dangerous because people do so many stupid things in the name of opinion. You don't apply the scientific method to your general thinking, and it can cause all sorts of damage. Religion is an excellent example of the, the biggest opinion you'll, you'll ever see. If, if it's not provable, then it should not be in any way ever used as a justification to be pushing people around. Right. You know, if you can't prove that there's some entity that's going to burn these children in fire if for some reason they're not, you know, baptized, 
then there's no reason you should have the authority to push anybody into baptizing their children. You know, and theocracy is, you know, a huge example of an opinion-ruled government uh, because all religion really it, it isn't provable by its nature. So, you, you, I mean, technically I suppose the atheists could kind of prove theirs, but th the point is, though, that it, these are examples of how opinions can get haywire. And they're extreme examples, but you use the extreme ones just so people kind of know what to look for. Well, hence and the rhetoric of faith. Faith is exactly. the ultimate excuse. Oh, you, you don't believe? Well, you don't see it? Well, you just have to have faith. And the ultimate right. scape scapegoat and refusal of thought is the disposition of faith. It's and that's also a wonderful attack used by those very same people against scientists who then say, well, you have faith in your science. I go, well, no, I have I guess you could say I might have faith in the scientific process, but guess what? That scientific process brings forth proof. So I have faith in proof. Okay, I'll take that one. Right. That's actually something I dealt with in one of the other chat rooms I had because it's uh, it's linked to a, a network that has a lot of um, libertarians in it. And uh, they were suggesting, you know, for example, that science itself is a religion. I wanted to ask you what you thought about that, Doug. Well, I think I just kind of covered it. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's not. It's, oh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Tim Minchin, M-I-N-C-H-I-N. He's a comedian from Australia. Uh, has a, a, a nine-minute beach poem. It's extremely funny. And if anybody can look him up on YouTube, it's hilarious. It's called Storm. And one of the lines in here, in his, in his thing, I'm going to paraphrase because I'm probably not going to get it exactly right, but... You know, science, no, what is it? Religion is faith based on lack of observation or proof, whereas science will mold and change its opinions based on what is observed. Hmm. Science changes its mind as it, arrive, as it acquires new information. It's one of the right. things I said in my Switzerland lecture at, at the very end. Science is constantly trying to punch its own ideas in the mouth for the hope that maybe they'll break it and come up with something even better and new. We're constantly challenging gravity. We're constantly challenging theories that have been around for centuries with the sole purpose of trying to make sure that we either, A, have it right for now, you know, a constant verification process, or with the hope of actually breaking it so that we come up with a better truth for now. But it's always the truth for now. Once we learn something new or come up with a new idea, then we adjust it. Religion is the complete opposite. You will believe this without any observation or proof required. And, that, and then it never changes. This is what it always is in spite of what you might learn in the future. So they are catastrophically different in their entire way of being between religion and science. So no. Science isn't a religion because they are diametrically opposed to each other as far as how they are practiced. Yes, also, and you don't end up at, Go ahead, Peter. I'm sorry. I, I would just also add an uh, agreement, of course. Uh, when people ask me that question, what I respond is, I say, okay, what has religion produced? I can go through uh, my home and I can find thousands of items that science has culminated from our computers to our infrastructure course, to our uh, transportation systems. Everything that's around us, everything is a culmination of science. Uh, and what has religion produced? Can you give me anything tangible that religion has produced except a convoluted sense of 
of emotional uh, sanctity that is utterly contrived. So there's nothing physically responsive from religion. And that's an easy way to shut people up really quickly because obviously science produces everything. Everything that makes it, even the most religiously minded people pull out their cell phone. They don't even realize that this is science. Uh, science is what saves their lives. Science is the medical establishment. Science, well not the medical establishment, that's a whole different thing. Science is the medical concept. Science is the ability to cure disease. So that's, that's a great way to approach, um, approach how to deal with those that try to make it even, like, they, ooh, science and religion are the same thing. Far from it. Just ask Galileo how that all worked out for him. <laughs> I use Good that one. example all the time. And, you know, but I'm sure those people, I mean, was he the one they put to death or is he the one they imprisoned? I, I... He's the one they imprisoned. They threatened with putting him to death, but they imprisoned him, which basically at the time was tantamount to the same thing. Right. So until, I'm, until sure that, I'm sure that all those people in there and were very stern in their opinions, and they probably went to their graves, you know, Far more satisfying knowing, you know, that they they put that evil man who tried to bring rational logic to them. Right. <laughs> yeah. How how dare, how dare the earth not be the center of everything? Right. Right. And, and, and it's the, closer, Go ahead. Uh, it's the ultimate. It's the ultimate example, isn't it? It's always great to bring up the Galileo example because all around us, the exact same phenomenon is in existence. There are all sorts of concepts that are put forward based on moral assumptions or bad science. That will have to be overcome in the future, but they will be met with the exact same vehement, uh, just vicious uh, refusal to change. And that is an unfortunate thing that we're going to have to be com- we're going to be combating uh, for a long, long time. The fluidity of society is non-existent. Everyone's based on dogma and knowing. It's a bad thing not to know. It's a bad thing to be wrong. And the entire social system is based on this stubbornness. And unfortunately, the Zeitgeist movement has a uh, a series of brick walls to pound through before uh, we're going to have any chance of really getting this notion forward. But you know, I won't go on that tangent. I, I want to read something really quick, if you don't mind. Go know. ahead. Go ahead. Um, this, this, I can't believe it just lined up perfectly this way. I wrote an article or a note on my Facebook page earlier today because I was on the way to work. And there's this thing called Engines of Our Ingenuity that comes on National Public Radio that I listen to, the, the Houston area of public radio station. And it's from the University of Houston when they talk about various science, technology, engineering, social science topics for a little two-minute, little cute little episode. And this one hit me perfect. And so I'll read this to you real quick. This, the topic is about numbers, rational numbers, irrational numbers, basically how they were defined in different ways of, of looking at what numbers are. And, and so it gets to this point, it says, and things only get stranger. We know that the rational and irrational numbers are both infinite, but there are infinitely more irrational than rationals. That's because there is more than one type of infinity. This is the result of George Cantor's pioneering work on transfinite numbers. Cantor's contemporaries were extremely critical of his efforts. Henry Poincare called Cantor's transfinite numbers a quote-unquote disease. Leopold Kronecker, one of Cantor's teachers, called Cantor a scientific charlatan and a corrupter of youth. Today, mathematics and engineering students can't survive without knowing at least some of what Cantor unearthed. Cantor's work led him to study sets, the set of all red cars, the set of socks in the bottom drawer, Mathematicians believe sets were even more basic than numbers. 
So in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they went about defining numbers using sets. It seems crazy why the fuss with sets, but it laid a foundation that helped us learn many surprising things about what we can and can't do with mathematics and with computers. So if it wasn't for him going off the deep end and all of his peers basically calling him a nutter and shutting him down, and, you know, exactly what's happening to us in the Zeitgeist Movement or in, and at the Venus Project is you come up with these radical ideas that challenge the norm, and even the contemporaries will go up against you because it challenges their beliefs, even though history has proven time and time again the Galileos and the Cantors of the world are right. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Okay. So they're just a, a little more, a little less well-known, but just as, well, you know, obvious example of what we're talking about. And, and even yep. even within the scientific community, we have the same type of dogma or the pseudo-scientific community in the sense that, for example, Hemel Weiss, I made this point in the social pathology lecture on Z-Day. He was a doctor that was essentially involved in childbirth, and during that period of time, no one washed their hands. So they had these epidemics of women dying because they would give birth, and they would immediately die because they got these infections. And what happened was the doctors were doing autopsies, being, not washing their hands, going up and then handling children uh, from utero and then spreading this infection. And what happened to the doctor that figured this out? He was refused. All of his peer-reviewed papers were thrown in the trash, and he ended up dying in an insane asylum. And this was before the germ theory of disease culminated. So even, even scientists and even the scientific community or the medical community is not infallible. That's an important thing to remember. Scientists in and of themselves are not necessarily insusceptible to the same dogmas and, and nonsense that we find in other communities. So keep that in mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I, use, I, I bring forth the global woman debate as a, a very good example that you have one side of scientists who are paid to say one thing. And I don't mean paid like bought off. I mean they make their living doing research that is funded by a grant and there is a tendency by those who give the money to propagate a particular viewpoint. Then you have another side who is also doing the same thing, but they're supposed to propagate a different viewpoint. So you get these two conflicting viewpoints because of the monetary twisting of these scientists still need to live. They need to be respected in their communities, and their scientific communities, because if they do get ostracized because of coming up with wild ideas, they suddenly become unemployed and incapable of providing for themselves and their families, and they, because of empathy and love for their family, don't want to put them through that. Well, that's kind of a BS reason, uh, at least in today's society. It bastardizes true scientific discourse or conversation, because really you should be allowed to throw all the spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. You should not have to go to the spaghetti bowl and pick only the noodles that sound good with the rest of them and throw those up against the wall. True scientific progress will come about, I think, in the RBE, unlike anything we've ever had before, because now there is no more life restriction as far as quality of life of how a scientist lives or whatever ideas are thrown on the table because everything is now fair game, and you can do, do true, open-ended, expansive research on the craziest ideas because there's no more financial restriction or manipulation to those ideas. Not, not to mention that the implement, implementation of new 
provably uh, effective ideas will no longer suffer the slow, grueling market system problem of investment and prototype and all the things that stifle pretty much anything that's new. It takes forever to get new technology into, say, an automobile, say, I don't know, a fuel cell, say, say a battery technology for electric cars. Why? Because it's stifled not only by the establishment who wants to maintain their profit margins, but also by the, the actual system of production, which has to use the monetary system and maintain profit and cut corners and all that annoying, snail-moving uh, phenomenon that basically takes forever for anything to, uh, to come to fruition that's actually beneficial, which is why we have the same you know, old methods of uh, just about everything at this stage. I mean, it's, it's fascinating when you think about how slow new scientific uh, – I mean, we should have solar panels on every single building and every single uh, city right now. Why? Why don't we have it? Because it's not economically viable to do so, and there's too many people in the way with political lobbying power to make sure that Congress won't allow such a thing. Uh, obviously, everyone knows about the electric car and what happened to the EV, and it's just a little microcosm, and there's so many things under the surface that go on and on that we could have such a more such a sustainable culture right now uh, if, if the monetary inhibiting factors were not there. But uh, that's obviously a thing we talk about a lot, so I won't uh, I won't be raising that. <laughs> right. Well, um, you know, I, this conversation has been awesome, and I, I once again, you know, just to thank you guys for coming on. Uh, and uh, this show has definitely got <laughs> quite a buzz in the chat room of 226 users, which is actually a new record for the amount of chat room people I've ever had on B Radio. Um, so, in any case. High five. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you say that, I, I, I think about Borat in my head. A high five. <laughs> there you go. But, um, you know, it's, I think that um, people are scared of the idea of losing their right to their opinion because they have uh, basically associated that with a lot of issues. They think that that means that we don't want people to talk. They think that that means that we don't want people to think. And it's actually the opposite. We want you to think. It's not that, you know, we're going to force you to do anything because there is no coercion in what we propose. It's a matter of it behooves you, it is to your benefit, to not settle for opinions. Don't settle for unresearched ideas. Obviously, in the beginning, you can, you know, kind of formulate a kind of a hunch to get yourself started. You know, that's the, that's the benefit that intuition gives you. Intuition will tell you. Well, hmm, I'm going to check out this problem. I have a gut instinct that it might be this, but then you go research that because gut instincts can be wrong. My marriage That's what a hypothesis is. <laughs> right, a hypothesis. So, it, it's, but it's a question of don't settle for, you know, I'm just going to say it, half-assed, you know, understandings of what you're looking at, particularly if it has to do with things that involve the lives of people, you know, that's basically the, the critical issue here to eliminating opinion. You know, it, that's the issue that I don't think that people are, are they're, they're scared because they hear that terminology, but they don't realize that we're not trying to take away their freedom. We're trying to make them free. There's so much garbage that goes into opinions, like the example that Jock gives, you know, a bunch of men go over to a woman's house and you have all these opinions about her. Well, where does that come from? That comes from your conditioning. It comes from your environment. Why do you even care that a bunch of men went over to that house? It comes from desperate housewives. <laughs> right. But the point, though, being is in all seriousness, in, in your uh, 
in your environment determines what your values are in the beginning. And you'll end up having all these opinions that are in some way influenced by outside sources. Everybody gets them that way. The difference is, though, is that you need to have the critical and analytical thinking skills, critical tools to being able to decipher what's bullshit and what's bad science and what's reality. You know, that's, that's the thing that many people just don't have. And, it, it, you know, particularly, I mean, I, I know I keep coming back to the sociological aspect, but, you know, your opinion is subject to things, as I brought up earlier. Is my opinion going to get me in trouble? You know, I, what, are, what are the Joneses going to think of my opinion? These are all things that influence people in their opinions that should have no influence on them at all, you know, at least not beyond any logical sense. You know, there are so many things that go into what people do you know, as far as their thought processes that are not in any way based in rationality. And that's why we suggest it's not a matter of taking away your right to an opinion. It's that we as a people, need, you know, as a species, need to move past being willing to settle for knowing just a little bit about anything that we decide that we're going to act on. That's, it's critical because, it, not just because of the issue of research and all that, it's also a matter of self-introspection. You have to go into any kind of situation thinking about it, you know, being suspicious of yourself. You know, is this what I really believe or is this what other people would want me to believe or is this a belief that I hold because other people held it you know, I, I need to be able to get outside of all of that because otherwise mankind cannot evolve. The, the biggest thing that holds back evolution is the inability to truly see things, as Bruce Lee put in Tao of Jeet Kune Do, in their isness or in their fussness. Uh, one of the things he did in the martial arts was he streamlined them. He pulled out all sorts of impractical jargon, uh, just garbage, as he called it the fancy mess in martial arts, there's just stuff that was in there that had a purpose maybe a few thousand years ago that had no purpose anymore. He pulled it out, and he got in a lot of trouble for that. People were so upset with him for cleaning up the martial arts. They were so upset with him for exposing that a lot of traditional things that they held as reality were simply not true. That's an example, again, of you know, the reason opinions need to go away. If you can prove it, then then you're right. If you can't, well, then you better continue to seek proof. And if you do prove it later, and when you were proven wrong earlier, well, now everybody needs to put aside their ego and say, wow, he was right. That's sure. the way to do it. Absolutely. I'd make uh, just two quick comments on that. You brought up uh, tradition, and the way I see tradition is as an historical reference, and that's it. It has to be active. So beyond tradition in the sense of reference, meaning something that's occurred and that was in practice, anyone who holds tradition in the modern day in a static notion is intrinsically in error because it's, it is, there's no justification to think logically that your tradition will hold true. People will try to twist that. They say, oh, well, the scientific method is a tradition. No, it's not. It's a process. Processes cannot be traditions. Traditions are set norms, set practices. So, that's one thing I wanted to point out. Tradition is extremely dangerous in the static notion that we see today, and I'm not afraid to say that, even though I know people will take, take arms to that in a certain context. The other issue, as you stated at the very beginning of that, of that monologue you just stated, stated, is that people think they have opinions and they have choice in the system. And I'm sorry to say, and if anyone listening disagrees, I ask, what choice exactly are you, are you, are you having? What are you doing? What is your participation? 
Do you think that punching a, a button on a, on a voting booth is doing anything? Do you think that the individuals that you put in power have any obligation whatsoever to follow through with anything that they have stated? I mean, if you think that freedom is going to the mall and buying things, well, then I guess you're correct. But beyond that, you have no freedom, you have no choice, you are r ruled by an elite. So I, for those that continue to harp on this idea, this illusion, this convoluted idea that in a resource-based economy, their, their valued opinions will be removed, I ask them to take a reflective look back at what they're doing today. Because I'm sorry, you have no choice. It's not there. It hasn't existed. It hasn't existed for thousands of years. And the dawn of what you could call a democracy where people actually have the ability to communicate ideas with the interface that we, I have just described, this, 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 this system where you can actually evaluate things objectively, not just mass opinion, but a, a database of information. This is where the dawn of true social participation, participation and progress will emerge. It will be the ultimate paradigm shift towards scientific reasoning as opposed to the whims of whatever distorted value that is the flavor of that generation. I'd have to go so far back in time as to think that about the only time it was put into practice would be hunter-gatherer troops sure. that literally depended on each other to survive. That is about the only time I can think of right. where direct democracy and, and, and informed opinion matter because if they didn't work on the same page and, uh, and share the same amount of knowledge, the tiger would eat them or right. something else bad might happen. And so I guess in a way we are upgrading the hunter-gatherer community set to a global technologically advanced status. Well stated, absolutely. I think I think anyone out there should do research on the hunter-gatherer societies because the the simplicity upon which they lived was such that they didn't have the flexibility. It, so they were bound. They were bound by. They didn't control. They couldn't control agriculture. They were bound by the environment they were in. They had to observe and take care and preserve their crops. They had to make sure their water was clean. They didn't have the option of going back and cleaning it and cleaning it themselves. At least not in a in a direct sense. So they were bound in this very simple world. And uh, in an interview I did with Dr. Robert Sapolsky, he made a very bold statement. He said that one of the dumbest things that we ever did was move into, uh, excuse me, move out of the hunter-gatherer system. And he didn't mean that in the sense of like a, a, you know, a denying of technology or a sense of refusal of progress. He meant that what happened at that transition point really sent a it sent a shockwave through society that we were, have been unable to recover since then. We have not mature enough to, to be able to deal with what it means to hoard or why to hoard or what it means to preserve. And we created establishments and divisions, and we started to hoard, then value came into play, then money, and then suddenly, boom, you have what you see today. But I think everyone out there that really wants to think about what an effective system is, uh, in its all simplicity, you should think about the hunter-gatherer communities. Um, not to say that we should go back to that, not at all. And, but yet, in a, in a high-tech sense, that is sort of what we're going for, in a high-tech sense, and it's still in a progressive sense, is to bring back literally the community and the understanding of the world in which we share, which has been long lost, so we don't have to go on that tangent. No one has any concept of how their food is brought to them or even how it's culminated. No one has any idea how, how anything operates. There's a completely decoupled community out there that just literally, they, they, their association with food production is going to the grocery store, and that's it. And it's, a, it's an unfortunate uh, modern reality, and we do have to return 
to uh, to understanding what it means to live on this planet. And it's not a metaphysical notion. It's not a new age notion. It's a very fundamental concept that's been lost for a very long period of time, and we have to uh, we have to get it back. So. Now let me uh, go ahead. So you go ahead, Doug, and I'll go next. All right. I look at it this way. I'll try to make this quick. That you know the hunter gatherers were given abundance by nature. I mean, because they were small groups, and they would, but uh, granted, they did migrate and move as, as necessary, but nature still provided everything that they needed to survive. The quality of life wasn't exactly the highest level, but they still could survive because nature provided abundance for them to survive. So what are we talking about? We're talking about in the 21st century letting our technology provide abundance for us in the same exact way. Except right. even better now, because we have harnessed the power of the almighty electron and have been able to develop energy systems and transportation systems and communication systems that make it even better. But what is essential to both of those constructs is the way in which people behaved regarding that abundance. That is what we have lost, is how we behave with the abundance, because we have been conditioned to believe that there is nothing but scarcity when in fact, as we all know, we can now technically evolve past that thanks to our wonderful brains and the things that we have invented that can provide us abundance once more. Now, let me go ahead and uh, take my, my moment here. Is that something that's interesting when I was studying various ideologies to try to determine how best to communicate with people. Um, I, it is ironic, Peter, that we bring this up because one of the, the groups that I ironically have the easier time talking to are anarcho-primitivists who obviously feel that, that one of the major things that we disagree on is that they think that a large part of the problem is just technology in of itself. But some of the attitudes about how they would wish to govern themselves or to talk about how, well, you know, the answers are obvious, just go with them. You don't really need a, a rigid structure or people telling you what to do, you know, and if you don't like what's going on in this tribe, just go to another one. You know, things of that nature, um, and, and also that they want to bring abundance back. They're kind of more into a permaculture attitude, like if you turn everything over. Now, the reason I don't feel it's a reasonable solution is because technology is never going to go away. It's really unrealistic to expect that the world will just agree to not have it. Um, but that being said, um, one of the what we're talking about is essentially because, like you talked about this, and I remember looking into this actually anthropologically was that we had hunter-gatherers and that it was actually, you could say, technology was part of the problem when we switched over to the agricultural situation because that's when mankind started to think, oh, well, I don't need to be part of nature anymore. I don't need to worry about it. I'm the master of nature. I can control nature. And as soon as we started thinking like that, we stopped, you know, thinking about, I mean, once again, we're not, we're, you know, if you don't even have to be in a religious Gaia theory to understand that you live here. The system that you're in is critical to your survival. How you manage that is critical to your survival. I mean, if you can't think about, if you're so selfish that you can't think outside of yourself, fine. Even a selfish person should understand that if you're living on a rock floating in space that only has so many resources in it, then it's in your best interest to see to it that they are cultivated in the best possible way. You know, if you can't think you know, you don't want to think too far to the left or any number of other stupid labels people put on general decency, then just think about it from the perspective that it is whatever is done for all mankind 
that benefits all mankind, since you happen to be a human, <laughs> benefits you as well. So, uh, basically, when it comes to this, though, we're talking about utilizing the science, but at the same time recognizing that the Earth is critical and that we have to keep it healthy as well. If you think about it in the terms of imagine that the Earth is a spaceship that we're all on, it's not really in your best interest. I mean, if you're on a spaceship or even just a submarine, you know, we could go closer even just to saying that. Now, if you're on a submarine, how many people do you think would be willing just to pollute the air on a submarine? You know, they, they probably wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> you know, how many of them would want to pollute the water supply? I'm just going to go over here to the water supply in our submarine and I'm just going to take a pee right in it. You know, does that sound, you know, but, but because the problem is so big, it allows people to forget these little critical issues. And with science, we can take good care of the earth. And we don't have to be afraid of science for that reason. Now, when it comes to, you know, opinions, you know, and as far as, like, using the scientific method, we can better understand the earth and then take responsibility for what it is that we're doing, be good caretakers of the planet, not just because it's the right thing to do, because that's obviously not enough for people. It being the right thing to do is not enough. You, you need to think about it from the perspective of, even if there is no economic collapse, an ecological collapse is very possible. And this is one of the issues where we need to come to terms with things logically. Because if you, this is one of the reasons why some of the free market people scare me, is because they think that you can just let everything go willy-nilly, you know, let everything fall where it may, everything will be fine, but they don't really, that basically encourages everybody to think without any understanding or concept of what decisions that they make and how, you know, what, how they will affect other people, how they will affect eventually even themselves. That's an example of it just, it encourages irrational behavior because you're essentially put in a position where you have to survive and Everybody else is competing against you. This is not the breeding ground for rational thought. That's how you end up in situations like, you know, I really could uh, just go ahead and, you know, put, put this toxic waste away, but since I've managed to lobby the local government to make it so that it's actually cheaper for me to go ahead and throw these drums into the ocean, I'm just going to go ahead and do that. You know, these are the kinds of examples of freedoms that should just not exist. And not because we're going to have some totalitarian regime chasing you down, but because you yourself should be of the, you know, should be able to understand that that's a stupid idea. You yourself should be free of any number of the other things that have influenced you to make you think that it's okay to dump toxic waste into the ocean. My brother actually showed me an article about that once. There was a company that literally would just dump the toxic waste into the ocean because it was cheaper to pay the fines than it was to get rid of it. That's an example of how the scientific method should be what handles these situations. Not whether or not, you know, democracy obviously failed and does fail often. You know, the democratic system is not bringing us what we need because the idea, the, the notion that you should even be thinking about dumping toxic waste in the ocean in the first place is totally irrational. And when, you know, obviously, there's another thing we said earlier, Science will be much more reliable when there is no money. You, you, end, you end up in a situation where, as a corporation, because your opinion, well, or you would rather the public opinion was a certain way, then you're given to give grants to scientists who will give you the kind of information you want to present to other people. 
that's another reason why we suggest that there should be no – we're not talking about any kind of caste system where there are going to be scientists who are going to rule over anyone. We want to get to the point where mankind as a whole, any one of us can go out and do the tests in the water to determine the effects. Any one of us can go out and use the instruments necessary to determine whether or not, you know, the dumping of a certain thing is a good idea or not. Any one of us will be empowered to do that. That's one of the other things that's really terrible that's as far as taking away our freedom as human beings is we always think, oh, well, maybe we should go ask somebody else if this is okay. We, we don't empower ourselves enough to just go look at it for ourselves. We don't, you know, it, there sh- it shouldn't be just a select group of people who are capable of doing this. You want to have real freedom, that it's in having the ability to have a strong grasp on reality that you can prove, you know, hypothesize on and then prove for yourself. At that point, you're f- totally free because you're not dependent on anybody else to figure out the truth. You can do it yourself. Um, so, do either of you guys have comments on that? Well, sure. Uh, that was, a, that was very nice. Um, uh, what I would say, uh, back to the middle part of that statement, is uh, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? It seems so obvious, the uh, symbiotic relationship of things. The monetary system, of course, compounds an extremely short-sighted view. I think I've made this comment before, but I think uh, it's worth stating that John Perkins, when I spoke with him, he said he's never met a CEO that was truly malicious or one that really wanted to hurt the environment. But because the monetary system is what it is, they go out and do it in the short term. They look the other way. They retire, and they think to themselves, oh, yeah, that was a bad thing we did when we dumped all that waste you know, such as Monsanto, we dumped all that waste in that gigantic river and injured all those fish and invariably poisoned the people. But, you know what, other people probably won't do that. And that is the mentality. That is the mentality that's been culminated in this culture. That coupled with the lack of extensionality, because now no one have, have any concept of extensionality. They don't realize that when they pollute the environment, what that actually means, because they assume, oh, this is a big planet. Uh, the planet will renew, and it won't ever come back to me. And naturally, that is, again, an unsustainable value. So those are the. It seems so obvious, but unfortunately, most people have been conditioned not to operate that way. We live in a cutthroat world. Everyone wants to get ahead. Everyone needs to get the almighty dollar, and they're willing to sacrifice not only their own health but the health of the environment to do so. So until the monetary system is removed, there's no hope in that regard. There's, the medical establishment is a classic example of one of the most poisonous institutions in the corporate realm right now that is doing things that are so colossally backwards and wrong. And they do it because they have an establishment. They can make outrageous amounts of money. They actually get together with their lawyers and they actually calculate the lawsuits that they will have from their certain drugs that they haven't even really tested as well as they should have just to push them through. The FDA can be paid off. They have these things with the FDA. You can literally pay the FDA $10 million to get your drug approved instead of three years in six months. They literally have these programs set up. And what they do to justify it, because they know they're going to kill people, they know they're going to poison people, they know their antidepressants are going to cause suicide. They've done the statistical research, but they know they can make more money off of it and pay the fees, and they can walk away regardless of how many people they kill. This is the mentality that is dominant in the culture. So it's no surprise. None of this is a surprise. And obviously, again, it's so obvious, but people don't see it. So uh, that's a good point, though, Neil. Right. Go ahead, Doug. I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. 
I'm trying to think of anything more that I could add that would actually contribute value to the conversation. And well, I have something then if you if you're waiting. Um, yeah, you pretty much nailed it. I just uh, watched um, another uh, Michael Moore uh, documentary called The Big One, and at one point he's talking to the CEO of Nike, and this is another example of how opinions can be dangerous in ways that you don't automatically think about. But when he talked to the CEO of Nike, it was obvious that the CEO of Nike was, a, you know, a real person, you know, not necessarily a vindictive person, just somebody who has allowed himself to come to the opinion that uh, workers in, I believe it was, I think it was, oh, I can't remember the country, but, uh, oh, Indonesia, yeah, uh, that like 14-year-old girls are making Nike shoes for 40 cents an hour uh, in sweatshop factories. And it basically allowed him to manipulate things enough to the point where he essentially was able to convince himself that this was acceptable. He was able to have the opinion that this was acceptable. You know, and Michael Moore, of course, you know, because he kept saying this guy also was able to have the opinion that he wasn't doing this motivated by money, that money had nothing to do with um, his motivation. But then at the same time, yeah, I know, but at the same time, he was not willing to take up Michael Moore on his offer of, well, you know, because this is the other thing. The whole justification for all of this is that he holds the opinion that Americans don't want to make shoes, that we don't want that job. So Michael Moore says, oh, well, that's crap. I, I'll take you to my, my home in Flint, and there's so many unemployed people there. They would love to make your shoes. I guarantee it. And he's like, well, if you can prove that, you know, then absolutely. You know, if you can prove that, then sure, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make one there. I, I'll give you my word. He shook his hand. Michael Moore goes to Flint. I used to live in Flint. You don't want to live there. In any case, I can tell you he did find a whole crap load of people who would love to work at a factory job at Nike. I can tell you because I live in the Michigan economy, factory jobs right now would be great. We would love that because then we wouldn't be stuck in the overcrowded service industry. And maybe might even, in theory, make more the minimum wage. Of course, he declined. You know, Michael Moore went and got video proof that there was a large group of people who, in fact, did want to make Nike shoes in Flint. He had the proof in his hands, but that CEO was able to maintain his opinion that people don't want to make shoes. This is, this is one of the other problems with them, is that it, opinions are, can be delusional. Yeah, I think in that context... That's less opinion and just basically bullshit because there's no way in a, in a corporate structure they're justifying the wants of people, especially when they're paying people 40 cents an hour. But still, I understand your point. Uh, obviously, the guy was trying to do whatever he could to make himself look like he wasn't exploiting people across the world. But anyway. Right. Well, you know, I think what I'm getting at is, is that I have a funny feeling that this, regardless, this, that's probably what this guy tells himself. Sure. No, you're right. People, people, are, people are very good at bullshitting themselves, too. Let's make no mistake about it. I've met some people that are involved in some of the most despotic industries and they, practices that you would you shake your head at, and they're able to justify it. They're able to justify it by comparison, which is the easiest way because, of course, this is the monetary system. It's very competitive. This is what everyone does. This is normality. And then they justify it to themselves in these other very convoluted ways. 
Uh, in fact, I'm going to have a section on the new film about various forms of human motivation and different ways that people can, for example, in certain uh, prisons, when they give lethal injection, they actually have two people turn the key. Why? Because blame is distributed. In ancient uh, firing squads, uh, even in Germany they did this, they'd give one rifle to somebody. Well, first of all, a firing squad intrinsically is there to distribute blame. So if you have ten people killing somebody, everyone feels a little bit less guilty rather than one person just putting a gun to their head. Not only do they do that, they would put an empty bullet. Excuse me, they'd have an empty, uh, one gun would not have a bullet, believe it or not. So each one of them, they'd not know who, who didn't have the bullet. So each one could sort of justify to themselves, oh, I probably didn't have the bullet. I'm not really guilty of killing that person. Isn't that just incredible? Isn't that just mind-blowing how we're able to to skirt around the reality in such a way that we can try to justify and make ourselves feel better out of an obvious scenario that the intent is what it is. It doesn't matter how you twist it. It doesn't matter how many people are involved. It doesn't matter. So anyway, I just thought it's a really phenomenal, uh, excuse me, not phenomenal, really amazing phenomenon that people are able to do this. Uh, so I'm going to have a little well, that's actually. That. No, that's actually really, that's really relevant, Peter, because that's exactly kind of the point I was trying to get at. Right. that people can formulate opinions that are just total bullshit that would not, I mean, you could not convince a, a scientist that, you know, that that it's, that somebody isn't dying, that you're not participating because you're only one guy turning a key or one guy, you know, it's, the, the, the facts of the situation are not in your favor. But it's like, that's another one of the aspects of not really being free, is that people don't understand that their inability to, deal with the reality of the situation is actually another lack of freedom. Um, that's actually yeah. something in the Matrix that uh, Morpheus was bringing up was, you know, essentially he was saying, he's like, you know, you take this pill and I tell you the truth, you take this pill, you go back to Wonderland. And essentially, Peter, people like you and me, you know, filmmakers like, you know, Mr. Stewart are kind of doing that to everybody. You know, here's the pill, you know, do you want to take the reality pill or not? And there are so many people who have convinced themselves that they're not interested in it. You know, and that's, that's why I talk all the time about the fact that people are not interested in politics. You can't talk about it. You know, it's, they, they're totally interested in yelling and screaming about American Idol or World of Warcraft or any number of other things that they've decided for some reason are important. But they, but they don't ever really get into the facts about what's actually making the world work. It's easier right. for them to pretend that as long as they continue to have their, you know, their, what did what the guy in network say, their, their steel-belted radials and their toaster, you know, leave them right. alone in their living rooms. And right. now that's another thing that came up because I gave this as an example in the ongoing debate on this topic on the forums was I, I gave my subject of Sheeple Show, which if you haven't listened to that, Peter, you should. It's my favorite V radio show. Okay. I gave a link to it, and one of the things in it uh, was all of these people's opinions of Sarah Palin and their opinions of various people in the Florida primary, you know, people that they're going to vote for to become the executive, you know, officer. You know, basically, I played clips from two different interviews where the first one was where Sarah Palin was doing a book signing, and there's all these people in Alaska freaking freezing their butts off waiting to talk to Sarah Palin. You know, and, you know, she goes with a microphone. He's like, so do you think Sarah Palin should be president? Oh, absolutely, totally. You know, that's awesome. I definitely want her to be president. 
oh, can you tell us about what policy that Sarah Palin has that you appreciate? And the lady's like, oh, uh, yeah. I, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. You know, right hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's another example of obviously you're not using the scientific method to draw a conclusion about the fitness of Sarah Palin. Right, you know, or it, anyone. It, 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 but right, and that's where... Sure, I mean, you, you're free to be an idiot. You know, you're free to be stupid. You're free to have a half-assed opinion about Sarah Palin. I mean, it's going to take that from you. But you should not, however, it would be tyrannous of you, essentially, for you to expect that I should therefore allow you to give that person authority over me based on you like her hair. You know, right. because that's the thing. Some of these people were vehement, like, fanatics about Sarah Palin. And, you know, you ask them questions about what do you think of her foreign policy? No no answer. What do you think of this or that? And then the, here's – this is the one of the, with the real kickers. Because they ask, so where do you get your news from? Because, like, you know, I've been watching on the news and, and blah, 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 you know. Um, you, know I, you know, it's like – and I watch Fox News a lot. You know, what's, what's the solution he gave to this is why I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, and – it, it's basically, those are examples of how people will, you know, the, the thing that they're addicted to is the their right to not actually know what the hell they're talking about. Hey, great point. That's, that's exactly right. And, of course, the cult of personality attribute of all politicians is really the drive-in mentality. If you go back in history, it's always been it's a charismatic issue. It's always something that is absolutely devoid of any actual reason or act or accomplishment or or in many many cases, not even a promise. It's always just the cult of personality, or the illusion of change, and variation when the the public sees variation as a requirement. So, uh, but we we all think know that fairly well. But that's a very good point. That's that's just hilarious when you think about how conditioned people would become, where they they just follow people around. Uh, it always reminds me of that Living Color song, Cult of Personality. If people want to punch that song up and follow the lyrics, uh, they nail it perfectly. I love that song, actually. That's, yeah. um, I love that band, too. They really deserved a lot more attention than they got. Now, yeah, they're a great, great um, social group. I have a lot of respect for the social musicians out there. Yep. And now, uh, Doug, did you have anything further to state on what, we're, you know, what we've been going over so far? We're down to the last 20 minutes of the show. Right, absolutely. Um, yeah, I've seen videos like that, too, for all the different various candidates of all kinds of stripes, you know, where the... John Key public doesn't really have the foggiest clue why they are supporting, you know, a particular candidate. I'm going to support Obama because he's going to give me a house. Or I'm going to support, you know, Palin because I like her hair or whatever. <laughs> all the various idiotic reasons or absolutely no reasons at all. The deer in the headlight blank stare, which is the ultimate truth that they just don't have the foggiest clue why they're supporting what they are they are rolling with the tide and going on mass opinion, which goes all the way back to Peter's article, which talks about a whole bunch of people running in the same line, you know, doing following the, the cult of personality doesn't necessarily mean that they are right or that they have the foggiest clue what they're talking about. And yeah. so we, we definitely need to create safeguards against that as much as possible. Uh, and that's what the uh, that's what the resource based economy structure is designed to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. Now, um, 
this has been an awesome show. I actually want to give everybody an opportunity so that we can do it before. Um, if uh, well, I mean, obviously you don't have to push the zeitgeist movement, but uh, <laughs> Peter, you're working on a new film, uh, and uh, you're looking. We're looking forward to seeing it. Obviously, uh, people can see your films at the zeitgeist. Or, I'm sorry. What would what would the URL be to see your films? Uh, the gateway is just gatewayzeitgeistmovie.com. So. And, yeah, the new right. film's coming along. Uh, it essentially will take all the components that were addressed with regard to the Venus Project, all of the attributes, essentially, and break them down from, uh, well, excuse me, describe them in detail. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but it, essentially the first section of the film will deal with the culmination of the human being, and the second section of the film will deal with the environment that culminates and the sort of feedback loop of environmental culmination of the person and how they affect society and what that actually means, and ultimately the, the, the ultimate communication is how the society is creating us, and we have to change society so society can reinforce us in the correct way, and I have all sorts of attributes that discuss the environmental problems that are in, on the horizon. Uh, the tone of the film is essentially, and this is my personal view, that we have to begin this change. This isn't some pie in the sky, oh, let's have a happy egalitarian system where everything is equal. No, this is required. Nature is communicating something to us. We're in an unsustainable practice on multiple levels. We're a type zero society, in the words of Mikio Keiku. We have some serious problems on the horizon, and I'm really going to try and paint the picture that uh, we have to begin to move into a rational system based on resource management, intelligent orientation of decision-making, and all the things that we've discussed in this program. So it's going to be a tour de force piece, both with the intellectual attributes. I have 15, 20 scholars and personalities stretched throughout it. It's a pseudo-academic work, but naturally it goes beyond that. The people I've chosen are far from just pure academics. But uh, it's, it's very important, and it will definitely trump the other films. It will be the definitive film, as far as I'm concerned, to represent this new system. And uh, hopefully I'll have it done by late December, early January. Excellent, excellent. Now, yeah. Doug, um, uh, you and I are actually working on making the book form of uh, your Awakening film. Um, right. And uh, where can people go to uh, buy your book again? It's on lulu.com. It's called Turning Point, How Space Exploration and Development Will Determine the Rise or Fall of Humanity. It basically showcases why space exploration matters. Uh, in a way, it kind of talks about the evolution of mankind and its passion to explore and learn new things, which is what drives our technical progress in the first place, and uh, why, why I believe that space exploration is vital in the long run for human survival because of our ability to go get resources somewhere else, a la asteroids or things of that nature, so that we don't have to pillage the planet anymore. Um, now, granted, I wrote this book before I became knee-deep into the Venus Project. This book was created a little bit before then. So I do talk about private space, the commercialization of space, and things like that. Uh, but the data in there and the facts related to space exploration are still 110% vital. Uh, for understanding how technology matters and where a lot of our technical progress came from. Um, we actually just got a question from uh, Brandy Hume. Um, I think we can squeeze the answer in here. It shouldn't be too tr troublesome. Uh, she says, I've got a lot of objections from Austrian economists saying all decisions can't be made by the cybernated system because human action is of irreducible complexity. 
I've heard that argument quite a bit. Uh, can Peter or Jacques please comment on why it is necessary to have a central system and not just everyone creating abundance for themselves? Well, if Jacques would like to comment, that would be great. I can... I can say something about it, uh, that first of all, our language was designed hundreds of years ago, and it makes it almost impossible to talk to one another. We talk at each other rather than to one another, because language is subject to interpretation, not the scientific language, the everyday language. For example, sometimes I meet a person that says, I'm a nature lover. And I say, really? They say, yes, I love nature. You mean you like earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis? All that's nature. People don't know what they're talking about. They're using a language that was designed long before we were able to give language real meaning. And that's why we all need refresher courses in general semantics. So we understand what we're talking about. An acquaintance of mine came up to me and said, Jock, I'm running for political office. I said, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> Good. Right. Now, this is uh, the reason. You're basically stating that one of the reasons why we need that centralized computer system is that people's inability to communicate with each other is one of the things that gets in the way of determining um, what resources we need and where to bring them. Now, uh, I can hear Doug queuing up, and I'd also like Peter to comment on this. Go ahead and go, go, ahead and go first, Doug. I'd, I'd say that, and I got into a debate with this Austrian thread, actually, and I almost lost my mind because they, they are, one of the things I say, one of my little quotes, is you can't use 17th century ideology to run the 21st century. And they are, they are fundamentally stuck in this archaic method of governance that we absolutely must have money. In fact, one of the things I said to them, and they completely ignored, probably because they didn't know what to come back with, was, were, were you born with a wallet in your diaper? <laughs> no. All right? You don't need that to exist. You are taught to use that later on. But for all intents and purposes, it is a meaningless piece of paper if, we can create the abundance necessary for all human beings. And, and they are still of this mindset of individual, isolated groups of people trying to exchange and network together because of scarcity differences. And they try to rationalize this it's as if they cannot fathom that we are now a technologically advanced, globally interconnected world that has the capability to transport, adjust, and shift information and production capabilities at the speed of light, virtually instantaneously, for the benefit of every man, woman, and child on the planet, effectively eradicating scarcity by using our advanced technical procedures and processes to create abundance of biological and quality of life needs. They cannot wrap their heads around it because they have been so trained and educated to only think under one paradigm. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't care what they think. I'm, getting to, I'm, I'm almost to the point where I don't care what the naysayers say anymore. Because we, the younger generations, I'd say those of us that are generally around 30 to 35 and below. Now, yes, there are older people and, you know, that are, that are also coming on board with this idea. But it is those of us that are younger who were born in this technological age, 
who has done nothing but grow up in it and understand the capabilities a lot more than these old ideologies do. It's unfortunate that these old ideologies are passed on to younger generations, but I think there are going to be a lot more of us than there are of them when it comes to the mentality of, look, we cannot keep using old world methodologies to govern the 21st century. We are better than that now. That, that needs to go away. And so I'm almost to the point I'm done with engaging those kinds of people because they are closed. They are shut. And I think the only thing that is going to wake them up is a system crash that will smack them upside the head. Now, me personally, I'm a little less doom and gloom than PJ. <laughs> I, I, I think we can head it off at the pass uh, like by implementing Venus-style solutions to try and solve problems by creating a boatload of nonprofit organizations whose motives are not monetary gain but just developing systems and, and using that, trying to find those wealthy philanthropists who aren't so concerned about continuing to make bucks but continuing to, you know, help the planet. They, they're, they're rare, but I do think they exist. And even at that, just pooling all the resources of the like-minded people to get quality solution sets implemented, if nothing else, to take significant chunks out of the influence of the monetary system on major aspects of people's lives. Excellent. All right, Peter, go ahead. Well, yeah, well, I don't mean to be doom and gloom. It's the tre it's the trend analysis <laughs> that I like to uh, I like to bring up to people because we do have we are on pace to some tremendous problems, and I agree with you. We could stop it at any point. I mean, it doesn't have to materialize this way. It can be stopped at any point. And while there are in, in turn uh, intermittent solutions that can be put forward, there are temporal solutions, excuse me, that can be put forward to ease things uh, within the monetary system. Naturally, uh, as I don't have to explain, they're very, very difficult to implement uh, considering what's, what's reinforced now. So I don't mean to be doom and gloom. I don't say that we the system, quote, has to crash, but unfortunately the value systems are most likely not going to change without some form of crash, without some sort of kick in the ass for these people to realize, I mean, humanity is going to have to be smacked around a little bit, and that's an unfortunate reality. That is the biosocial pressures that Jock talks about. And as far as the other question from Brandy, I think Jock made a great point about language because these, these uh, Austrian school guys, that's how they think. They think in language. That's the way people think. We think in language. So their concepts are locked into the language that they use. So that's a very important point, and I hope everyone can understand that. But on another level, I mean, if they think that money is the end all, well, here's, here's the reality. If people decide to work together right now, even with the extremity of our system, with the excessive materialism and overt consumption, if everyone decided to put down their money and continue to do what they did in a reciprocating manner, you could have everything you have now. You could have all the grocery stores filled with everything you have now without one cent being exchanged if the intent was to work together as opposed to compete. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it should be because our current practices are painfully excessive and uh, very heavy and hard on the environment. But that is the way to approach these guys. It's all a matter of what the values of the culture are. And money as a, as a regulator of scarcity has served that role. But as Doug eloquently pointed out, modern technology has the ability to eliminate that scarcity up to a certain point. And one of the more ominous things that Jacques said to me a long time ago is that there is a possibility we could reach the point of no return. 
And the point of no return is an inevitable bell curve of resource depletion. Uh, we can't just sit back and say, oh, nanotechnology will come through and save the day, as some people tend to say. Uh, we have to be very, very diligent in what we're doing, uh, because if the point of no return emerges, if the system isn't updated adequately, if peak oil hits its psychological, it's not the peak oil isn't the, about running out of oil, it's the psychology of running out of oil within the monetary system that will be disastrous for for uh, the planet as we know it. It will stifle everything in a way. It will, you, 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 wouldn't even, you won't even know what stratification is or what elitism is until the psychology of running out of a resource like that actually sets, uh, is set in motion. So I would just leave it at that. And in the end, I, the Austrian and the, the hardened, hardened economists, what I say to all of them that are in support of the GDP, in support of labor for income, what you say to them, you ask them, how is it that what you suggest is actually economizing? Because what you tend to find is that they're not economists. They're anti-economists. Nothing in the system is about preservation. Nothing in the system is about, is about strategic usage of resources. That's what economizing is. It's about an economy is something that actually preserves. That's not what we do. The entire thing is based upon perpetual consumption. So it's, it's uh, hilarious that these guys actually think that what they present is viable from the standpoint of nature, because it's not. It's a contrived uh, esoteric notion with the assumption of infinite resources coupled with the need for scarcity, paradoxically, to generate higher profits. And it's quite possibly the most idiotic system ever created. Now, to go ahead and put my own point in this, uh, just to answer the question, I would think in a way that uh, libertarians would understand, because um, I tell them the same thing, uh, because they... I, Generally, what you have to do is, is mention to them that nobody's going to go to your house and force you to be part of any of these communities. In fact, Jacques talks about, for example, the Amish can go do whatever the hell they want. This isn't about that. What is the advantage to a, to a centralized system where we determine, you know, I don't even really like using the word central because that implies like there's just this one thing that controls everything. It's a network. It's not like there's just one thing doing all this. It's a network. Everybody's putting in their data. Everybody's responding. Everybody's responsible for it. There are advantages to working together in a community. And what I generally tell them is this. Okay, we already know that people can get off the grid. They do it all the time. There's a whole subculture of people who do that. They create abundance of energy, food, everything they need already. Anything wrong with that? And most libertarians, you know, Austrian economist types will say, yeah, nothing wrong with that. You know, um, all right, fine. So then a group of, say, 10 or so people, they decide to do it. Is there anything wrong with that? Well, no. I mean, they're not forcing anybody, right? No, they're not forcing anybody. I already said that. <laughs> I know I'm arguing myself, but I've done this so many times. Um, then there's, you know, the next stage of, well, what if a city, you know, people want to do that? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Well, and then eventually, what if the world decides that they want to do that? Is that okay? Yeah, and they always go, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, then that's it. And if you don't want to be part of it, that's fine. This is, you know, they always, because we use the word share and because everybody's been conditioned to think that share equal communism equal fascism, you know, they think that we're going to come to their door and beat their door down and take their stuff. Nobody's going to do that. We're suggesting that this is how we think mankind should live, if you'd like to help, please come over here and, and we'll help you, you know, we'll help you understand how to do it. And if you ever want to leave, go ahead. 
It's that simple. You know, the reason for a centralized system is that way you have a better grasp. You know, you have other people depend on in the event that something goes wrong with your system, then, you know, then you're not just left out by yourself. Because if you're in a world all by yourself, then you're also only responsible for yourself, and nobody's responsible for helping you. There are benefits to it, but it's not like we require it. You don't have to be part of the big, massive thing if that's what you want. You know, if you don't want that, fine, whatever. That's up, that's on you. Right. So we're now down to the last 60 seconds. Um, did you have anything further to add to that before the, before the show is over, Peter? No, I think that's, that's a, a very great general point. Uh, no one's forced at anything, but I think uh, they will realize the obvious benefits of, of what we're describing, even though their values are going to have to be adapted. And that's, uh, that's, that's the reality. All right. Uh, anything from you, Doug? No, I thought that was a fantastic explanation. In fact, I hope somebody uses that on it, going from an individual to a group to a city to a nation to uh, the entire world and see how they take each one of those points. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Um, This has been an awesome broadcast. Uh, Please visit bradio.org, b-radio.org. There you can see archives of more great programs just like this one. And uh, thanks again, Roxanne and Jacques, for tuning in. Uh, I really appreciated having you. Just a little bit of participation we got from you guys. I know it's really late over there, and I'll probably talk to all of you off the air a little bit after the show is over. So um, thanks again. Everybody say good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night. Great to hear your voices, Jacques and Roxanne. Hope you guys are well. Well, we are going to hear a little bit more of their voices as I close the show. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to The Radio.